Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Today's guest is Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray is a best-selling author, journalist, and political commentator. He's also an associate editor at the British magazine The Spectator. Douglas and I had a wide-ranging conversation about the rise of intersectionality and its consequences for society as a whole. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, Douglas Murray. Media bias is one of the great problems facing our democracy. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much time you spend consuming news. If your news diet is unbalanced, you are very likely developing a false picture of the most important news stories of the day. To combat this problem, I've recently been using something called Ground News. Ground News is both a website and a smartphone app that collects the most important stories of the day, along with the various articles that cover that story, and then sorts the articles by their political bias in a user-friendly way. So, for example, I'm recording this on November 21st, when the biggest story is that a federal judge threw out President Trump's lawsuit requesting that the results of the Pennsylvania election not be certified. So I can click on that story and then get a collection of links sorted by political bias. I can then check out how the left is covering the story and how the right is covering it. But the most important part of this app is a feature called Blindspot. If your news diet is unbalanced, then every day there will be stories that you simply don't see. There are whole topics that the right is not interested in covering, and likewise for the left. So for example, today on Ground News, I can see that the left is more or less ignoring the fact that ISIS launched rockets into a residential neighborhood, killing eight people and injuring two dozen more in Afghanistan. And I would guess the left is not so enthusiastic about stories like this because They are hard to square with the narrative that jihadist violence is an understandable reaction to American imperialism. Meanwhile, the right is barely covering the fact that COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have surpassed 12 million today, and the virus seems to be spreading with a renewed vengeance. This obviously does not make America or the Trump administration look very good, So the right is not so interested in it. So that's the kind of thing you can learn every day with the Ground News app. This is a great tool to have if you're interested in having an accurate picture of reality. So I'll put that link in the description and you can all try it out. Douglas, thanks so much for coming on my show. Great pleasure to be with you finally. Yes, uh, we've been going on the same podcast circuits for a couple of years now. So uh, you're, you're one of my most requested guests and it's a pleasure to be in the same room as you finally. Well, likewise, I'm uh, really pleased it could work. And um, I was allowed in by the US authorities in a time of pandemic and um, able to be with you in New York. What a time to want to come to our humble country. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting month to be here. Yeah. 
So there's a lot we could talk about. And I went out on Twitter to see what people were interested in us talking about. And the, the two most popular topics seem to be first your bicep routine. And secondly, the, uh, the challenge of living a meaningful life, religion, philosophy, literature, you know, rather than another conversation about your book, the madness of crowds, which I, I have to imagine many of many folks in my audience have read and I enjoyed thoroughly. I think there's a broader question about identity. When we talk about identity politics, as you note in your book, at the beginning of your book, we're talking about something that has sort of something that is religion shaped, something that's filling a kind of hole that religion has typically filled for many people. And I observed this firsthand at Columbia University. The role of intersectional politics, it was much more than a politics for people. It was a subculture and a sense of community and a sense of identity. It's how people built a sense of self. It was the primary way in which they built a sense of self. I didn't meet many Christians. I met many devoted intersectionalists, right? So then there is larger questions about how not to build a sense of self. And then the harder question of how to build a sense of self. And that's kind of the what I want to put to you as a starting point for the conversation. Well, there's a lot there. Um, first, I mean, you're completely right. There is a religion-shaped hole in the society. And I'd go further and say there's a religion-shaped hole in people who inhabit the society. You see it with the intersectionists, with the fact that all of it apes all of the habits of organized religion. It has by now developed its own theories of guilt, atonement, excommunication, heresy. We've even got flagellation back, albeit in limited form. It hasn't caught on that widely yet. We have seen it in American cities. Um, and all of this is because, I think I said in my last book, but one in The Strange Death of Europe, we are in this unusual position as societies. America, Britain, where we have conversations about almost everything, but not about what we're doing here, what the purpose of life must be or might be. Uh, I notice this quite often when talking to people in their teens. For instance. There's this sort of, let's put it this way, broadly speaking, conservatives sort of say, well, Let's get the conditions of the market in place to free people up and then find happiness where you will. Have you got any idea of how we should do that? Well, kind of left that alone. And then a portion of the left has come along and said, actually, we've got a very clear set of routines for you. We've got a really almost full-time job for you. And it's got purpose and it's got drive and it's got some justifications. And, and, and this is something to do with your life. And I do think that there has been a massive abdication of responsibility by a lot of the adults in our society of saying how that hole should be filled. Now, I have my own views on that. And I'm not that prescriptive about it as it happens, because I think there's an infinite, almost infinite number of ways in which 
people can find purpose and meaning in their lives. Um, the reason I wrote The Madness of Crowds was to say, know about this, know the scale of it, and try as hard as possible, as fast as possible to shortcut it, and then get on to what you should be doing. Now, that question of what you should be doing after that, uh, I mean, I can give some broad views on it. I think, firstly, as a person who's instinctively, culturally pretty conservative, I think that one of your best shortcuts is to look at where people found meaning before and find whether you can find it there. In the places, in the ideas, in the culture in which our forebears found purpose and meaning and drive. And that's a good place to start. It's better than trying to invent totally new ways. Uh, at least start from there. The other point in that is it helps people not to feel themselves totally at loose in the world. What I mean by that is that if you know how to throw yourself into the places where people have previously found purpose, you won't find it so strange in our society and in our world. You, you'll know what people are talking about when they talk about certain music or certain art or, or religion. You'll have a less vague idea of what it is that's going on and what went on before. And I would also say, and I say this as a, a non-believer, but uh, I think it's a great failing of non-believers, atheists, agnostics, and others, not to address this. Um, I would say, if you're not going to aim towards God-shaped things, the issues that religion has always sought to address across societies and culture are, are the big issues. <laughs> Purpose, life, death, uh, birth. It'd be a shame to skip over all of these things uh, or believe we were beyond them. I remember a few years ago, I was on Yasha Monk's podcast, oh, yeah. and he asked me a question that really stumped me at the time, which was similar to the question I, I just asked you. So say, you know, I, I've been very critical of woke identity, intersectional politics, all of the things you're talking about in, in the book are things that I I'm young enough that I basically grew up with it in the teenage years. I sort of was exposed to it before it hit the wider culture right. and really was, I was really enmeshed in circles where everyone adopted it pretty right. wholesale. Right. So I, I feel I understand the appeal of it to a degree that a lot of people don't. Like I, I and that's the reason I've been so critical is, of it is because I understand how you can give a teenager with who, who's not been given any grand meta narratives mm. who either because, you know, but because of the wider secular quality of American culture, religion's not on the table. Um, Christianity certainly isn't on the table. And if it is, it's in a, a deeply watered down form because yeah how tribal our politics are Christian just in this country doesn't mean right wing. So if you're not right wing, you can't be unapologetically Christian. Right. Mm. So, so that's not a, that's not really an option for people. And it was never an option for me as a, as a kid who was always attracted to 
rationalist mm. thinkers that would, you know, destroy the sacred cows. Right. And growing up during the Bush era, when we were seeing a lot of Christianity having an impact in, in American politics, it really felt like atheism was the underdog to identify with. Yes. Right. So I see how you give a kid like that a set of beliefs about a set of beliefs that sets up a good versus evil narrative. Mm. It says there are bad people in the world and there are bad systems and it's your spiritual mission essentially to fight this. Yeah. And we have very simple solutions, policies you can support, but beyond even policies, just ways of moving through the world mm. and navigating the issues of race, gender, sexuality, mm. uh, gender identity, and so forth that just make you a part of this, you know, star Wars like struggle against the empire. Yes. And the truth is that there was no competition. There was, there was, there was no other game in town for, for kids in my generation who the kind of kid that sort of needed that. Right. For whatever reason, they weren't content to just party or whatever. They needed something and there was no other game in town. And by the way, isn't it interesting that that, that's across intellect? Certainly in my view, it's, it, there are very, very bright people who've immersed themselves in this. Yeah. There are intellectually very incurious people who have also immersed themselves in this. So it, it, as, a, as a movement, one of the interesting things about it is that it's, it's not actually reliant on some highly doctrinaire sect of intellectuals. It's, it's been panoptic in its ability to be adopted. Right. Right. But, but the question... Yasha asked me was, okay, you're critical of this. I agree with all your criticisms. Mm. What are you going to replace it with? Mm. Because if you don't have an answer, then it's a, it's a, it's a bit like how it's much more easier to write a book review than it is to write a book and to just Mm. devastate someone's book Mm. without putting forth one of your own. It's easier to uh, destroy than create. Exactly. And I found the answers I have to this question. I don't, are not shaped like the, the same, the ideology that I'm criticizing. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't have a all encompassing thought system. That's going to give you everything right. that woke gives you. Right. Uh, and that I, I fear that that puts people like myself and yourself at a perpetual disadvantage in this conversation. Um, it could do, it could be the opposite. The desire to have totalistic systems that you can adopt might also be a downside of some of our opponents. Like hierarchies, uh, hierarchical structures have great advantages and very obvious downsides. Um, the Catholic Church, the whole way it's set up, has immense upsides. In recent years around the world, it has discovered one of the downsides, which is that if the top becomes badly flawed on a very visible issue, it disintegrates everywhere. And you have whole countries like Ireland just divorcing themselves from something they've been in for centuries. So that's, that, that can be a downside as well. It, the highly doctrinaire people who want to do woke do have certain advantages, as all people with totalistic systems that explain what you should be doing and everything else are always going to have. But they've got a hell of a disadvantage too. Like, what about when the whole damn thing falls apart on their watch? Huh? What about when... People don't want the highly doctrinaire. What if one of the things we're going through in our era is a need to absorb the complexities of things 
and that that's more deeply understood and more widely understood than many people give it credit for. You know, I mean, I would have thought on a whole range of political issues, the public instinct is, for instance, much more nuanced than the people who speak on behalf of the public, and that the public have adopted a whole set of complex things simultaneously and that we should give them credit for this. So I agree it can be a disadvantage not to have the whole thing mapped out, but it is also an advantage. It's an advantage to say, you know, that guy there coming towards you at 100 miles an hour with all of his views and all of his claims, he's got something going for him and he's also somebody you should run a million bloody miles from. You know, like everybody across history who comes at you with that famous glint in their eye that suggests that they think they know better than you how you should live your life and they will make you if they get the chance. You know, the people who don't have that are at a disadvantage at some points in history. There are other times and it's a deep advantage not to be doing that. Yeah, the, the other question that comes to my mind is, I just spoke to Amy Chua about this. Mm. Who's she, She's done a lot of work on tribalism sure. and ethnic attachments. Very and, thinker, yeah. yeah, very, very hard to categorize her. But whether being an American can anymore be be an, a meta narrative that people buy into, because growing up in the particular the blue tribe, I would say, roughly, and you, you really do have to speak of America in, as two different countries at this point. I think sometimes to understand it. But if you're from the blue tribe, they're just like Christianity is not really on the table as a meta narrative to to throw yourself into as a kid looking for meaning, patriotism likewise is increasingly yeah. unavailable. Yeah. Has been for a long time. Yeah. Arguably decades. Yeah. In in Europe it's decades. In America it's more recent years. Yeah. Right. This 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 goes to something you've talked about in the West, which is uh, or in the past, which is uh, the the West's lack of confidence in itself. Yes, and this is a this is an issue. It's difficult to talk about this because, on the one hand, I'm I've always felt that my country, right or wrong, is not the right ethos. Mm. Right, like mm. you want you want to hold your country to the fire on the things that it's genuinely lagging behind on. Yeah, and so. I've always felt that if patriotism means, well, I'm just for my country, period, mm -hmm. regardless of what is actually true about my country, that's something I've never felt comfortable with. On the other hand, if I just look at what's true about mm. how do people vote with their feet in the world? Where do they want to come? Mm -hmm. if, if we're just judging neutrally. Yeah, it's unarguable. America has to be among the most... Mm. amazing places to live in the world yeah. like something is going right here yes all of the black and brown migrants around the world want to come here first before yeah. anywhere else yeah. and there's something you know that that fact just uh the, the america described by the woke left mm. seems so different than the america that black and brown people all over the world are leaving everything yeah. behind for and so I just seek some kind of coherence, some kind of accurate description of, of the country that is not reflexive, but is... That's right. The, the, I mean, the, the first task, when you mentioned your generation and growing up, of course, one of the things that's on my mind is during that time, it's so important that people actually get a reasonable view of what happened the day before they arrived in the world. 
And I'm not sure that people your, of your generation, I may say so, not sound too ancient, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think a lot of people of your generation don't actually have an accurate idea of what the world was like before they came along. I, by the way, this isn't their fault. There is a deranging trend in history books and in the media that presents the world in a very unsatisfactory way that is rewriting the past and redoing the past, apart from anything else, in a tone of extraordinary ignorance, in my observation. We continually have news stories, for instance, in my own country, in Britain, and I think it happens here, which presented as if we didn't have prominent black intellectuals, artists, thinkers, musicians, and much more, until now. I have this pet obsession over when the, the soprano Jesse Norman died last year. It was presented by the BBC and other news media as if there was something absolutely amazing about the fact that she was black. And that hadn't been amazing or interesting for decades. Mm. You know, she recorded Wagner with Carianne in the 1970s. You know, if Carianne didn't have a problem with that in the 1970s, I don't know why news media does in 2020 or presents it as if there is something like that going on, something surprising. And we keep on having stories presented like this. It happens on all of the identity. It's happening with Kamala Harris right now. Like the, the notion that it's, it's amazing that there's a black vice president. Right. So she's broken through. That's so strange to me, obviously, because we had a black president mm. for two terms. And so there, there is this really strange dynamic that also gets under my skin of the moment some genuine gain happens, mm. a black person or a woman breaks through in an area where it actually has never been done before, like the mm. presidency, before it happens, everyone says it's impossible. Mm. Right? If you remember before Obama, everyone was saying yeah. the country's not ready. The right. country is too racist for this black man named Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. And that's a prediction based on the model of the country. Yeah. And then the prediction gets destroyed. Yeah. He, he, you know, but the model never changes. Yeah, that's right. In fact, sometimes it gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I, I really worry about that. This is something I've run into when we're talking about the, the attitude towards the past is incredibly important. Yes. By the way, there's, a, there's um, an important, I think quite deep thing that, that can be addressed as sort of Yasha Monk uh, question. There's an important and deep thing that can be addressed here or should be addressed which is precisely over this issue of the attitude towards the past. Do you look at the past, including the past in your own country, as a thing to sort of hack through in order to find injustices in it and then sort of burnish something about yourself from it? For instance, by presenting yourself as better than your forebears. Or do you find a way to reconcile yourself with the past and indeed understand the past in its own terms as well as on your, on your own in the area you find yourself? My own view is that since every human being to some degree, various degrees, finds themselves bemused in the universe, finding the correct attitude towards what went before you as well as what's happening around you is absolutely crucial. And that the, the narrative of oppression, 
the narrative of progress, by the way, which I'm not an enormous fan of as a view of history, but the idea of progress that ends with the brilliant arrival of you is um, an unedifying way to view the past, not least because it can't reconcile you with it. And this means that almost everybody in the past fails to come up to the standards that you've set for yourself in 2020. Now, I think that, and there's a lot of thinkers who've persuaded me of this fact, that one of our jobs in life is, is, to, is, is not to war against the world, but to reconcile ourselves with it. Now, when I say that, of course, some people say, aha, but what about injustice? I, I mean the things... There will be injustices and there will be things worth struggling with and for. But there, there is also a requirement to find out where you can reconcile yourself with the world, the past, your forebears. And that's where, that's where the, 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 the issue you touched on of, of nation, of nationalism, would once have stood. The late Roger Scruton described the importance of nationhood as being that it was the, the widest way in which you could apply the first person plural, that if you felt you could say we with pride for things you and yourself had not actually done, when we did that, then that was a successful use of, of nationhood. Of course, for all sorts of reasons, that's off the table. And all these other forms of belonging are off the table. And we do have to find some way individually, uh, collectively, I would say. I think there are lots of people now trying to do this, to say, well, what would we cohere around? I was very struck recently, I've just been reading Thomas Chatterton Williams' book, his memoir, and I was very struck by a passage in that in which he talks about the way in which people who recognize that that there is significance in race, but that it isn't the defining issue, are going to have to cohere in some way in the years ahead to protect that ground and to defend it against several different directions where it could be assailed from. And I think that's a wider aim of those of us who believe in, in what one would have called a form of liberal pluralism. It's actually going to be a task. I mean, I see, for instance, a great, it goes back to this thing of a purpose in life. I see a great purpose in life of seeing the great rivers of thought and art and beauty and culture and religion and much more that have been coursing through the thing that you're born into and seeing where you add to it. And if you can't add to it, to be within it at least. And you know, one of the instincts that makes me against identitarianism of any kind, and specifically now the, the identitarianism of the far left, is I don't want there to be gay literature. I don't want there to be black studies. I don't want there to be women's books. I want these, these things all have a role and had a role as tributaries flowing into the main. And once they're in the main, they're there. You're off. You don't need the weird people trying to redirect them 
out of the river again and and into some stagnant pool. Yeah, this is why uh, this is why Bayard Rustin back in the seventies, you know, Bayard Rustin, who organized the March on Washington and was Martin Luther King's strategist, was against the nation black studies trend yes. in all of these departments. He said. Well, we're finally, they're finally beginning to study our history. This is what we wanted. Why would we then segregate right. it? This is exactly what the white supremacists wanted. Of course, that battle has been lost. Mm. Uh, and black studies departments now, there are a few, in, like you can really put them on one hand, right. where people are getting, they're getting black liberals, progressives, conservatives, and learning how to think in a, almost the way that you would if it were a normal sociology or history class. but overwhelmingly these are just indoctrination factories where you you have to you have to believe in critical race theory Mm. when you come through the door and we should talk about critical race theory a little bit because i've been pleased to see that just in the past two or three months it's increasingly being called out and it's sort of you know people who didn't know what this was six months ago now know what it is surprising people say crt to you it's a new trend i think it's i think it's a very welcome trend yeah and one of the big contentions of critical race theory is what you just said about bringing people into the main, right? What critical race theory does is it says, well, actually, what you think is a main is just whiteness in disguise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. There is no main. Yes. That's why, they're so, that's why they're so desperate to stop all heresy as they see it of people being adopted into the main. Yeah. I mean, and they do, don't do it on everything. As you know, I mean, they they seriously try to hive off what are now called LGBTQ writers. <laughs> the idea that there are no gay writers in the canon historically <laughs> is just one of the great, you know. Like, how did you think you were going to persuade people of that? But again, if you are in your late teens or your teens and you're told, oh, the, no, no, these... The whole thing was, was, of course, it was repression of gay rights, like so many other things, of course. But the idea that this uh, didn't exist until, you know, the 2020s, uh, and it's the same thing with, with women writers. It's the same thing with all of these, these things. And there are people who are rewriting this, who keep trying to, to present the past, you know, as if George Eliot didn't exist. And, of course, there's all things, sort of things to be said about it, but. These people, yes, they fear. They fear the sharing of ideas. That's one of the things I just can't help seeing at this stage. And by the way, we have a great advantage over them, a great, great advantage, which is that the people who push this stuff are pushing something false. How can you tell it's false? In the way that George Orwell told us the best identify false ideas, which is if the language is false. The language of these critical race theorists, like the post-everything feminists and the queer studies bullshit, all these people write atrociously because they think atrociously. They reveal themselves. You ever tried to read Judith Butler? Of course. (laughs) Of course I've tried. I, I, I may not be the smartest person in the world, but I, I, I can usually get my head around ideas. And I read um, a couple of paragraphs of Judith Butler and I, I have a migraine. I need to lie down for a short time because she's lying. 
And she's using language to try to cover over that fact. And the critical race theorists write impenetrable books and refer to each other's impenetrable books because nobody would read them ordinarily. Why would I read a critical race theory book when I could be reading Rilke? No, it's it's really true. I've spent I I think we both spent probably more time than any sane person should yes. reading what are considered some of the great works of critical race theory. Yes. By the way, I should say I have a tip for that. I, I think it's like uh, drinking alcohol. You should drink you should drink a glass of water for every glass of uh, scotch, <laughs> just to keep the system well. For every bullshit book you read, read a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, at least at least th- th- those should be the odds. Yeah. And just, sometimes I find people are sort of. Um, they don't, they get that wrong. Yeah. You know, no, and I think it's true. You know, unclear writing is, is usually a sign of unclear thinking. Yeah. And insofar as your thoughts are very clear, writing becomes much easier. This is as a, as an aside, I think one of the ways in which writing is mistaught, Hmm. you know, I think you just give students a topic to write about that they may or may not care about or be thinking clearly about and say, write well. Yes. Whereas we should, you know, start with the thinking and, Go That's right. The writing. And by the way, I mean, the other thing is I was always, I mean, I've been a writer all my life. I was always under the impression that the job of writing and ideas was to try to make complex things able to be understood. Yeah. Um, and the great moments in, as you know, as a, as a reader, the great moments are when a writer does that for you and you have that you have that feeling, what Aristotle calls um, anagnorisis, the moment of recognition that you have found truth. And that that moment comes when a great writer says something that you know to be true, and they have managed to distill the thought in such a way that you recognize it. Morally, you recognize it, and intellectually, you recognize it, and you're thrilled that somebody has done this. For you, <laughs> no, the the line of of your book that that stayed with me and gave me that unpronounceable word, uh, that feeling, was about slaying dragons. Yes, right. And I don't know if you want to talk sure. about that, but yes, no. I mean, that, that's it's actually partly lifted from the great um, Australian uh, philosopher Ken Minogue, uh, who wrote in a book called The Liberal Imagination in the nineteen seventies, described. Uh, a problem of liberalism, by the way, there's always, one has the caveat that the liberalism is a word that travels mm. on a range of passports. But in the liberal imagination, he says one of the problems of liberalism is, is that once it's slain the dragon, it, it might find itself like St. George in retirement. The amount of esteem and prestige has been awarded to the dragon slayer might encourage the dragon slayer to dagger around the land looking for other beasts to slay in order to gain all of that admiration again, or in larger quantities even, multiple dragon slayings. And um, I extend this to say that I, th- I think this is the, the situation in modern liberalism, is, is that everyone wants to have been with Martin Luther King and March on Washington. They mm. want to have been with the suffragettes. You know, they want yeah. to have been at the Stonewall Inn in 68, but they missed it. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? And they stagger around the land, uh, swishing their sword at ever smaller and less intimidating creatures until eventually, uh, and uh, some people say we're not there yet, some people say we are, but eventually St. George finds, is found swinging his sword at thin air. And I do think, I'm not 
being blasé about this, I do think to a great extent that's, that's, that's where we are. But, but just, just to return to this idea, the problem is, as I say, is that that was the purpose of writing as I saw it always, and the purpose as a reader of reading was to be able to get the idea distilled for you by a mind capable of the distillation process. And what we have in the people that one is railing against at the moment are people who have done exactly the opposite. They actually have very, very simple ideas about people, about societies, about structures, much more. And they wrap it in this incredibly complex and convoluted language because there isn't much there. The whole thing is really quite easy to understand. Yeah. And they make it more complex. By the way, I should mention you, that you did one, <laughs> which I'm always allergic to. You use meta-narrative. Mm. I was once at something with, with actually Ken Minogue, I just mentioned, and, and a young um, friend is an intellectual and used the term meta-narrative repeatedly. I never, never forget that Ken had sort of... Uh, owl-like eyebrows at one point sort of leapt forward at the end and said, you keep saying meta-narrative. Why not just narrative? And it is the case on, we've all had this lexicon of quite often just slightly more convoluted than they need to be terms. And we've all adopted it to some extent. I do meta-narrative as well occasionally, by the way. I'm not, (laughs) we can all do it. But, you know, we have actually been adopting an unnecessarily complex language, mm. even when we're criticizing it. There isn't that much in Butler. It's quite a straightforward. It's a set of assertions. You know, what? Real, when the, the point you're making struck me hardest recently was reading Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Very good example. So he, Kendi, unlike the critical race academics writes very simply, yep. right? Simple, short yep. sentences and so on. And then there, there gets to be a point in the book where he mentions systemic or structural racism mm. as an aside. And keep in mind, this is a book whose purpose is to explain anti-racism mm. to the widest possible reader, to the widest possible readership. Mm. And what he says is, I'm not going to use the term systemic or structural racism in this book. I'm just going to call it racism. Mm. Because I found that I can't explain mm. what systemic racism means mm. to normal people. I'm paraphrasing, mm. but that's essentially mm. what yeah, he says. I remember that. And I thought that's very interesting mm. because this is a person who, whose job and whose essentially his job description is to be the best guy at explaining yes. why systemic racism, this sort of what was once just an academic concept. Mm is important an important lens through which to revise your notion of what you thought racism was, Mm. right? We, we thought it was this individual thing, but what we're being told now is systemic. A system can be racist without any individuals. I mean, it's allegedly this complicated thing you have to understand, but why can't he explain it to us? Yes. It's, it's such a good example. It's, um, it's such an intellectual fraud, isn't it? Uh, to do that. It's, uh, as you know, I say this in Man's Crowds, that there are these tricks that are being done on us all. One is, I would say, this one of, you know, you must understand me, you will never understand me. Another one is, this is glaringly obvious, and it's so complicated I can't explain yeah. it. I mean, that's, that's a and heck if, of a trick. And if trick. you ask me to explain it, it's emotional labor. Right. I shouldn't be asked to explain yes, it. Yes, I'll find it tiring. Because people of yes. color have been asked for too long to explain ourselves. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. But it's also the most important crusade in the world. Yes. But, but somehow my exhaustion means I should be exempt of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like going 
onto a sports match and saying you're going to play by totally different rules of your own creation, you know, saying to your tennis partner, um, you may want to play with the net up, but I'm playing with it down. I find it easier that way. You know, this is, this is to rig the game from the outset. And I do think that's what a number of people who've got an extraordinary amount of sway at the moment, an incredible amount of um, inroads, have been doing. They've been setting up a game that is arranged for their own intellectual comfort. And I think they should be called out. Yeah, I think I want to come back to, though, how attractive this ideology is for people. I think I genuinely wonder about my audience what proportion of people understand why it's attractive to people mm-hmm. at, at a gut level mm-hmm. and nevertheless resist it, and what percentage of people don't understand the appeal at all. Yeah. And I think it, it helps to combat something to understand exactly why it's so appealing to people, whether that's jihadism or... Trotskyism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is an incredibly fulfilling and meaningful mm-hmm. ideology for people. It's mm. for... for uh, Especially for a person in the West who's doing okay or mm-hmm. more than okay. Yeah, yeah. And is bored. And is bored because, um, <laughs> and this, this gets to part of how I find meaning in life, but the, the Buddhist observations about psychology are all true. Mm-hmm. You know, that just having more, more cranking up the pleasure knob actually doesn't stave away boredom because right. you just adjust, you hedonically adapt. Yeah, yeah. So people are bored and looking for meaning as humans have always done. And if you have one thing about you, you know, you're gay, you're a woman, you're black or some combination of things, Mm. all of a sudden this can become a source of enormous pride for Mm. you. Mm. Like a pride is one part of it, but there's a lot more as well. Isn't there? I mean, it's by the way, I, 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 status as well. Yes, that exactly. That's That's the better. that's, That's the one. I always, by the way, when I was growing up and as I was gay, I um, I always had a total revulsion against so-called pride because I always I always thought if if you're not to have shame for it, then you wouldn't have pride either. And I, I just sort of instinctively felt that. And the other thing I instinctively felt about that was I was always worried my teenage years about the people who basically advocated that if you were gay, that was then your religion. Um, I remember it was because obviously, I mean, for very good reasons, a lot of gay activists and, and others were very anti-church. But I always thought that it was a category error to think that somebody, for instance, came out and then would inevitably not go to church, not have anything to do with religion, but gay would fill that space. I always thought it was just a category error. I, <laughs> even before I knew what a category error was, I knew it was one. Mm. and And I still think that. I feel very deeply that it doesn't replace that. It's not like going down to your local gay bar is going to be the replacement for church or something. And and I think this in each of these areas, I think what's more, it is also stultifying and limiting of what we are as human beings. You know, that's that's the fundamental. You know, if there was a sort of kick as to why. I feel so strongly about some of this. It's that at a fundamental level, I think it's reductionist of what we are and what we're capable of as humans. And that, you know, 
in the same way, if you introduced somebody, you know, I don't know, if somebody said, you know, hey, this is my gay friend, Douglas. (laughs) You'd be like, you know, he doesn't do it. Mm. And, And I think we all... We all feel that, and yet there are these people who've come along and said, no, 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 that should actually be the main thing. And so I think it's reductionist. And I also, I also think, by the way, that we are, if we're going to get out of some of the bad thinking we're in, it will be by people experiencing in their own lives the flaws of the system they've been encouraged to imbibe. Now, as you know, I believe that one of the absolutely fundamental ones that is coming at everybody who's adopted the thought system of time, the one that's coming at all of them is the lack of forgiveness. And um, I'm sure, like me, you have friends who have experienced that firsthand, you know. Good people or flawed people or people as good or flawed as anyone else who screw up in whatever way, once or repeatedly, and are done over publicly or in their peer group. And there's no damn way back. That's it. They're over. Cancel. Gone. Well, once you've seen that happen to somebody you know, let alone if it's happened to you, you will have doubts about the whole system. And that is, that is the great flaw in... Or you'll just close up whole parts of your personality. Uh, the, you'll, you'll close off the, the experimental and most right. fun parts of your mind. Yes. Absolutely. To make sure that you never, you never end up like that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, this, again, this is, this is what makes it not just like a religion, but like a cult. Uh, but I, I do think that a lot of people will see this, that it's not just reductionist, not just limiting, but uh, unforgiving. And once that's happened to you, I mean, I, I, give, give an example of this. Um, the, 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 the unforgivingness about people in history is a trait of the young and maybe has been for a long time. I mean, the, the concept, of, I think, of being young in the way we currently have it hasn't existed that long. People used to just go from childhood to adulthood. And this, these years and then became decades of basically kid adulthood, you know. But in recent uh, decades in particular, with the idea that, you know, People can judge their forebears, particularly it's a sort of post sixty eight thing. I think, in particular, there is this idea that you know you can stand in judgment over everyone who went before you because they must have known what we know now, and it's a very common fallacy. It doesn't survive adulthood for most people because we all know, as we grow older, how limited the range of perception for any of us as human beings actually is. You know. We don't know what we're going through as we're going through it. We don't know if we're in the first act of the play or the fifth act or what the damn play is. You know, there's an essay by C.S. Lewis, The World's Last Night, that I'm very fond of, an analysis of King Lear, apart from anything else, where Lewis says, you know, we, we, we don't know <laughs> where we are in the drama. And, of course, the conclusion he comes to, the only conclusion you can come to is, Therefore, all we know is that we should play our part well in the time we have. And then the focus should be, therefore, how do you play your part well? And among other things, it is to have an appropriate understanding of your place in the whole drama. And I think that 
the appropriate place is to realize that people before us, like us, only knew the lines they were speaking. And they didn't know what was coming before or after. You know, it's so easy. Like one of my favorite quotes is from Milan Kundera, who says in Testaments Betrayed, that, you know, man operates in a fog and stumbles along a path. We, that's not the interesting observation. The interesting observation, he, he says, is when we look back, we see the man, we see the path, but we don't see the fog. Mm. You know, the whole, the whole damn thing is fog. We know this in the year we're, we're, we're sitting in. You know, uh, we started this year with a pandemic that was said at the beginning to take vast swathes of us out. Didn't. We're not entirely sure why. Uh, people have got different instincts on it. But, you know, what thoughtful person could come out of 2020 and not have some greater sympathy for people in history? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, love, we love to judge the people who messed up Chernobyl or right. any of these crisis moments, but really we're not doing very much better. And it's for reasons that are, that have to do ultimately with human nature and how mm. this is one of my, my contentions with woke is that you, you said people are going to realize how this, this proves dysfunctional in their own lives, how mm. they're being hurt by it, how people close to them are mm. being hurt by it, which all, already, you know, happens all the time. But the ways in which it's, it's destined to, uh, you know, collide against reality are all ways that have to do with human nature. Mm. The idea that there's something immutable that we are like as creatures. If you talk about the relationships between men and women, mm. this is one place where I feel, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, having imbibed a lot of woke rhetoric about what is the proper attitude towards relations between, you know, a straight man and a straight woman. And I've seen that have virtually no reflection mm. in my actual experiences with actual women right, right. in terms of what they tell me and show me that, mm. you know, they are like, and, right. and it's just two completely non-overlapping. And it's much stories. more interesting. Yes. Like the reality is much more interesting. And also I, 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 to, to not, to know, knowing the reality, being in touch with what's actually mm. true about human nature and gender differences helps you. I think it can at least help you be more compassionate yes. in your relationships with the opposite sex. I, I found because there, there is this perpetual war between men and women, which is that it's being created. Yeah. It, it, partly it's been created, but partly it's that men don't always understand women and women sure. don't always understand men. Right? Sure. And the kinds of conflicts Obviously, there are exceptions. I'm making generalizations, mm. but the kinds of conflicts that people get into are very similar and and sometimes yes. predictable. And if you if you're taught that well, men and women are exactly the same at birth. Yes, I think it's possible for men to just treat women exactly as they treat their male mm. friends, naively mm. thinking that, yeah, believing the woke stuff. And vice versa, and then get into all of these conflicts that are that would be better understood from a point of view of understanding how how the genders differ. Yeah, that the, the, they differ, that they can complement each other. The Platonic idea, well, Plato's idea of the fitting into each other is a pretty good summary of part of the issue, and that that we are infinitely more complex than we are being presented as. You know, I mean, everything to do with relations 
taken between the sexes and indeed relationships and sex and much more in our era, um, pretends that things are infinitely straightforward. You know? um, if you only follow the rule book that was made up today, this morning, hasn't been finished yet, ink's still wet. Um, and that it's got to be, despite the ink still being wet, it's got to be rolled out across every damn person in society now, immediately. Otherwise, catastrophic punishment beatings will occur. Relations, uh, this kind of a very good demonstration or a reminder, I would say, of our complexity as human beings, a complexity that, again, everybody could find sources in history to remind them of. I mean, what is it? St. Paul says in one of the letters, I think it's a letter to Galatians, he says somewhere, he says, that I would not, that I do, that I do, that I would not. It's a good summary of something, isn't it? Mm. I mean, there are things you know you should do and you don't. Things you know you shouldn't do that you do and, and so on. This is all knowledge we've had. Like we don't need people to come along and pretend to us that we are things that we're not and we, we feel we're not. And it goes back to that thing that if there's a purpose that one of the purposes that people can find is to find their way to truths that they recognize that get around this crap. To be honest, I mean, that's a really good place to start. To be honest in your relations with other people. How many relationships go wrong because of a lack of honesty? Just an unwillingness to be honest. And that's in all sorts of relations. Sexual relations, personal relations, family relations. You know, think of the number of people who just are desperately bitter and twisted up because there's something they believe one of their siblings got and they didn't or their parent. You know, honesty has an awful lot to be said for it in personal relations as in ideas and in philosophy. And my own view, among other things in this, is that as you, as you stumble along, the advantage is that you find these flare lights on your path in your life, which give you an idea of where to tread. And sometimes that's from other people that you encounter. And they can be encountered in any walk of life. And sometimes you have that thrilling moment when it happens in a book. And you think, you know, you know when you find it, you've just been given a flare on the path. That's one of the things worth finding. And the places worth finding it are the places that have been recognized to have given it to other people before you. With the addition and the additional excitement of the fact that other people in your time will be adding to that path. That's not everything, but it's not nothing either. That's a great note to end on. <laughs> Douglas Murray, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a great pleasure.